Hey, welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Mm, we do. That we do. That's true. How are you doing today? Uh, help. <laughs> <laughs> I am hanging on for my life, Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you know this. A couple of the listeners know this because I have complained to them uh, about not sleeping for, you know, a month. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, and I've been afflicted by a tremendous queeze for the last few days, just for no reason. Just just because. Just the queeze came upon me and has yet to relent, so... Yeah, so I'm a I've I did literally finished this like 20 minutes ago <laughs> and I have no idea if it's going to make any sense. <laughs> I just kind of like sat down and and wide-eyed blasted this out going off of like you know, eight total hours of sleep in the last 2 weeks. Yeah. I have no clue how this is going to go. So, yeah, be warned this might be a train wreck, guys. I am very proud of you cuz this has been <laughs> A very long one for you. And for everybody who is listening that maybe you're jumping in on an episode randomly, uh, this is a part two yes. of our previous episode. And so if you haven't listened to that yet, you should go back and listen to that one first before you go any further. Mm-hmm. Go back and listen to part one. And uh, otherwise, um, we're going to jump in. But first, what are you drinking? Well, I probably shouldn't be. But I can drink it without it making me feel sick. So I'm drinking coffee. That's good. <laughs> yeah. That's not good for your tummy, I'm sure. But no, it's not. It's just like <laughs> acid. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Just straight acid. But it makes me happy. Yeah, that's good. It's keeping you alive. It is. Today. What are I, you drinking? I'm drinking. I have not. I'm drinking Gatorade. Yeah, I saw that and was like, why did he pick Gatorade? Okay. Because it's, it's daytime. <laughs> yeah. I haven't had Gatorade in so long. Yeah. Like, I think the last time I got sick was the last time I had Gatorade. I, like, and forced fed you Gatorade. Yeah. And uh, here, here we are. So, they don't sponsor me, but I'm trying to get them to. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Always. Gatorade and Glen Murray. <laughs> yeah, Gatorade and Glen Murray. Just, guys, whenever you're ready, I'll, I'm ready. We're here. We're here for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, before we jump into part two, I think you need to give us a little little boost with a little feel-good fact of the day. A little feel-good fact? Yeah, you got to get us with a good feel-good fact. All right, this one's cute. So squirrels will adopt lost or abandoned squirrel babies and raise them as their own. (laughs) There's a real sense of community in the squirrel world, as I have learned. Um, And a bonus feel-good fact is that baby squirrels are called either kits or kittens. No, that is cute. so cute. Super adorable. That is cute. Yeah, that one's... That one's nice. It's a nice feel-good fact. They adopt each other. They do. They adopt each other's babies. They make sure to, that everyone's taken care of. That's good. So the elephants and the squirrels are further ahead than they, we are. They have a more highly evolved society Yes, than they ours, do. Apparently. Yes, they do. That's good for them. How good for them? Must be nice. <laughs> Must be. <laughs> Must be nice. All right. Well, my dear, are you ready to take us in? I like feel, uh, look out, guys. I'm <laughs> trying my best. Okay, here we go. Okay, so part one was nuts. It was long and it was a lot. We've gotten some actually really nice feedback so far. 
Uh, thank you guys yeah. for that to everybody who's either sent us messages or or interacted on the socials. That's really, really nice. And it, I'm glad you guys liked it. So I know that I went a little hard trying to tell as many stories as I humanly could about the ranch. Uh, but I really just wanted to paint a picture of what was happening there and to just kind of demonstrate that it's not only strange, but like very scary. Yeah. So if you missed that, go back and listen to it, like Kevin said. So I'll recap really quick. So in part one, I talked about the Sherman family and their purchase of an almost 500-acre ranch in northeastern Utah. The land that they purchased as ranch land for their extremely expensive and prized breeding cattle not only had a dark and storied past, but was also regularly swarmed with disturbing and unexplained phenomena ranging from bizarre, like, monster animals— Unidentified flying objects, cattle disappearances and mutilations, strange mood-altering orbs, missing time, Mm. objects like poltergeisty things, objects being moved to weird places. Um, And so where we left off was that the Sherman family had had enough of the shenanigans, so they listed their property so they could move away from Mm -hmm. this place that they'd called home for two years. Um, and I left you with the teaser that someone who was interested in the property because of the weirdness yeah. would come in and buy it from them in order to la- launch a scientific investigation. So that's where we're going to pick up. Okay. You ready? I'm so ready. Good. Because cause why? Do you know why? Because this one. The dramatic pause is my thing, Kevin. <laughs> that's mine. Is a doozy. Thank that you. That it is. Okay. So, uh... In true me fashion, I've got a disclaimer for this episode. It's simple, but I feel like I need to say it. So mm-hmm. I had absolutely no clue <laughs> what I was stumbling into when I first decided to cover Skinwalker Ranch. I had zero plans of spending actual months reading <laughs> and rereading The Hunt for the Skinwalker and articles, watching documentaries, scanning Reddits, Reddit for the opinions of people who are much more like well-versed on this stuff than I am particularly on the subject of UFOs, because I did not know that Skimwalker Ranch was a UFO hotspot until I started digging in. So I also know that a bunch of information on the subject of UFOs is being talked about in like the highest reaches of our government right now. Hmm. And they're like releasing conversations that they're having and footage of weird things. Like if you guys haven't seen that, go look at it. It's very strange. So I thought, okay, this is actually probably a pretty good time to dip my toes in the water and and figure out what there is to learn about this stuff yeah. and like try and formulate an opinion. So I appreciate everybody putting stuff out there that is like really interesting to read and all that kind of stuff. Let's jump in with uh, learning about Bob Bigelow. So Bigelow is and was a Las Vegas billionaire who made his fortune in the real estate world. Bigelow was absolutely captivated by all things paranormal or unexplained. He noticed that there was slim to no funding for researching things like UFOs or other strange activity, which he called high strangeness, Hmm. which I thought was pretty sick. Um, So he started his own, I guess, team Hmm. to launch the study or whatever. So he started NIDS, the National Institute for Discovery Science. His goal was to get a broad range of hard-hitting experts on the team to assemble who would then utilize their various expertise to study, document, and try and work out explanations for the unknown. He also strung together an advisory board to help keep things moving smoothly and to keep an objective state of affairs. Bigelow launched this huge undertaking in 1996, the same time that the Shermans were on the ranch. 
he put an ad out in Science Journal, which mm. is uh, like a prestigious yeah. scientific publication, um, looking to bring scientists on board for NIDS. What he ended up with was a team of three PhD scientists, including a physicist, a veterinarian, and it included Colm Kelleher, PhD, who, along with the journalist George Knapp, wrote the book Hunt for the Skimwalker. So, okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, so. So these are not chumps. These are people who actually know what they're talking about. Yes, and it's also really important to know that a lot of people on the board, plus the other two um, scientists, like main main scientists, never wanted their name released. Like when the documentary came out in 2018, mm-hmm. their names still hadn't been released. Oh, wow. Because they're really trying to maintain like their reputation in the field because this is like, like studying things yeah. like UFOs is very, um, not scandalous, but scandalous. Right. You know, like it's people, you lose your credibility mm-hmm. with people because it seems so like fanciful and fantastical. And that's why there hasn't been a lot of studies um, that we know about at least. Yeah. Regarding things like UFOs, because people don't want to touch it because they don't want to lose right. their standing in their field that they've worked really hard to kind of establish, you know? Yeah. You don't want to be considered a laughing stock because you studied UFOs for mm-hmm. five years. And so Bigelow yeah. being interested in it, he just was like, you know what? You guys are, you guys need money to fund this research. You're interested in this too. Mm-hmm. Here's the money, whatever you need. We're going to take care. We're going to get all the best equipment, all that kind of stuff. So shortly after the team was assembled, Bob Bigelow got wind of what was happening in northeastern Utah and uh, specifically in the Uintah Basin, and he was attracted right away. He was particularly interested in the UFO activity happening there. Uh, When he saw the listing, he bought the property, and the NIDS team was soon on site preparing to begin their large-scale, their first large-scale study of the unknown. So let's establish a few things real quick. Mm -hmm. So first, let's talk about the objectives. Okay. Super simple. The NIDS researchers needed to observe and validate the claims that had been made about the ranch and about all of the like anomalous activity that was being reported there. Right. These observations would need to be documented or tracked in some measurable way as well. The next order of business was for the team to settle on the approach, like how are we going to do this? Mm. Uh, There were two potential options that had supporters on either side. The first idea was to cover every single inch of the property with sensors that would like activate should there be any activity. And those sensors would also be feeding like nonstop data that they could Mm. track and like file away however they deemed necessary. The other potential option was to scale back on the technology and be a little bit more secretive because the concern from people in that camp was that if they went too overboard with like instruments and equipment, they might unintentionally like deter the activity from Mm -hmm. happening at all. So both making good points here, like what use is the activity if we can't measure, capture, whatever, track it. And then on the other hand, well, it might not come at all if we, Go to gung-ho. Right. So it makes sense that there's supporters on each side. So before I forget to mention this, the Sherman family moved to a property about 25 miles away from the ranch. They moved their expensive cattle there as well. But Terry wasn't done at the ranch. Hmm. Once he was sure that his family and his livelihood were safe and secure, he actually was hired to work on the ranch. He assisted the NIDS researchers with their work and maintained the property He kept fence lines secure, and he raised some cattle that Mm. the NIDS team had brought to live on the property as well. 
Terry agreed with the second camp of researchers. He thought that less is more with whatever this stuff is that's been following and terrorizing his family for two years, you know. (laughs) Um, He knew that whatever it was seemed to be intelligent, calculated, and had technology on its side, unlike anything that we know about on Earth. He recommended that NID set up a sort of command post in the middle of the property for small amounts of people to man at a time. He thought that if they handled their investigation similarly as he had handled his when he owned the place, that they might be able to capture Mm -hmm. some hard evidence of Mm -hmm. the weirdness. On the nights that he wasn't being taken by surprise by the unwanted visitors, I guess, he would sneak outside like late at night and he would bring gear like that rifle scope that I talked about in the first one um, about the orange structures. Mm -hmm. Um, He would bring binoculars and that sort of stuff so we could kind of like go in stealth mode to spy on right. the activity and see like if it would, if it would see come to find it. Yeah. <clears throat> he admitted that this was not foolproof and that sometimes he'd wait in a ditch camped out there flat on his belly for hours before seeing minimal or no activity at mm. all sometimes. Right. But he also said that that seemed to be the only way that he was ever able to like catch a glimpse of the activity on his own terms, mm-hmm. so, you know, so I Instead also of running into it by accident, right? Which is what it was for two years. Mm-hmm. He was trying to look for it now, and right, of course, he would do that. That's like interspersed throughout yeah. the whole time that they were there when oh, okay. he was like trying to figure out. Because like I kind of had to breeze over that a little bit for the sake of time, right? But like there were plenty of times where he was out there. He had like a specific stump, for example. He would stand on this stump at night to look at the orange structure because it was Mm. like the perfect vantage point. Yeah. But he would like be sneaky about how he would like get there and set up and everything. And so he would do things like that just to try and see like if he could figure out what this stuff was. Right. And like, what, what is it doing? You know, because remember also for a while, he believed that it was military testing. He believed that this was was related to, yeah. Yeah. Um, so super interesting. So, The NIDS team, in addition to doing all kinds of research into the land, the property and its history and all that sort of stuff, they ran some pretty extensive background checks on the Shermans to try and rule out like tomfoolery that may have been part of the equation. (laughs) And they discovered quickly that the Shermans were just regular Joes who'd experienced things that they couldn't explain. Hmm. So do with that what you will. I think that the efforts to eliminate unreliable accounts is worthwhile i think that's wise also yeah you do that for any legal thing either Mm -hmm. like you Mm -hmm. you have to rule out someone not being crazy yeah you have to yeah so yeah so nids debated for a while about their options they had very little to base their final decision off of except for two smaller scale but similar experiments done in years prior one in florida and one in norway I'm not going to go in depth on either of these, but just for some context, Mm -hmm. the experiment done in Norway involved loads of gear, tons of methods and like types of equipment with one objective to figure out if the strange out of this world activity happening in that area could be measured. They were able to prove that the activity was in fact measurable. So that's the need to know on that. That's That's the only real precedence that they had to go off of to try and figure out What's the best approach for us to take here? Mm-hmm. Before we move into what they discovered on the ranch, let's take a few minutes just to talk about other records of paranormal activity that had been documented in the area before NIDS got there. I want to give some examples of just credible 
reports that seem legitimate, at least to an extent, of similar activity in other areas, just to try and make the case that, once again, if we suspend disbelief and try and be objective about these reports, they are compelling enough to at least agree that there's always more going on in the world than we could be aware of, you know? So we are going to start with talking about Frank Salisbury. Salisbury was a professor of plant science at the University of Utah who researched reports of UFO sightings in Utah, focusing mostly on the Utah Basin. The interesting thing about this is that about half of the population in the area had attested to seeing something strange. Mm. Of these reports, 90 to 95% of them were written off as being able to be explained. Like, right. we don't need to take any of these seriously. But the other 5%, Mm-hmm. is where it gets creepy. So Salisbury actually wrote a book with a man who lived in the area of the basin, uh, who we'll talk about in just a second, entitled The Utah UFO Display. The book that they put together consisted mostly of the most compelling and convincing reports from locals that claimed to have seen a UFO. The unique thing about the book is that they like meticulously filtered it out. Mm. Um, the claims and testimonies that were you know, ridiculous or like little green men or, right. You know, like to Hollywood yes. or to not, not, uh, independently verif- verifiable probably. Y- yes. And so they believe that the facts were interesting enough to like, we don't actually have to add any zest here. Like <laughs> yeah. with the stories that are credible and compelling, we don't need to add things to it. Right. So Salisbury received loads of help researching the UFO activity in the area thanks to the extensive effort on the part of longtime resident of the area, Joseph Jr. Hicks. He was kind of considered to be like the unofficial UFO historian of mm. the area, and we could trace his first documented sighting to 1951. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he's he did he's that been, for a yeah, while. Yeah. The first recorded sighting was of a cigar-shaped craft that landed near a school. It was seen by 30 students and their teacher, from a super close distance, like 50 feet away. Oh, wow. When Hicks heard about this, he decided that he would use his skills and passions that he developed as a science teacher, because he was a science teacher, (laughs) to investigate. So he conducted interviews with with each of the children individually, and all of their stories were the exact same, like down to the very detail. Wow. He concluded that it seemed very likely that they did, in fact, see what they said that they saw, that they weren't making it up. This turned into sort of like a passion project for him. Hicks quickly gained a reputation in the area as the guy that you want to talk to if you see something strange, Hmm. because he would hear people out completely. He would take their statements. He never made anybody feel like mocked or judged. And he never shared anybody's name without their consent. He kept super detailed records of all of these reports. He taught science in the area for 30 years, so people also knew him. There was like that familiarity of a a hometown face, you know. On his own time, he filtered out several thousand reports that he believed were either untrue or could be explained. Hmm. But even with his specific standards for filtering these things, he still managed to catalog over 400 sightings that he believed were true including one of his own sightings that happened in the 70s, where he saw a low-flying orange orb fly around and then over a high school. That's not all, though. Hicks believed that the first recorded sightings may have been traced all the way back to the 1770s when those Spanish explorers Mm -hmm. that I briefly mentioned in part one were in the area. 
He believed this because Father Escalante, who was one of the explorers, Mm -hmm. recorded seeing a burning ball like nothing he'd ever seen flying through the sky. So Mm. who knows? Who knows what it was? It could have been, it could have been like a super low comet or something like that. But like, I don't know enough about that kind of stuff to say, but yeah, he, he documented that in the 1700s, which is wild. That is wild. So that's just a little background. Hopefully that's helpful. The area is full of tons and tons and tons of sightings. So what did NIDS decide to do? They decided on a sort of middle ground. They set up a trailer that would serve as kind of the base in the middle of the ranch with a fenced-in observation tower, along with two other areas with fenced-in towers. Mm -hmm. They also added some like security cameras and sensors, but they didn't go overboard in case the hunch that less is more was correct. So at each of the towers, they also had dogs stationed there that would serve as both friendly support and they called it biosensors because the dogs were apparently able to like sense and sniff out the strangest strangeness more effectively than the people could. Right. Well, and like the story from the last episode where you've got, uh, Terry's dogs that chase after Mm -hmm. these, these, those orbs, Mm -hmm. like clearly they, they're willing to go after things and pay attention. And Mm -hmm. and so it's almost like setting up like electric sensors. Yeah. Obviously you can't capture. But they're alive. Bio, right. bio sensors. Yeah. yeah. So like you, but you can write down dogs freaked out at 3 a.m. Like, yeah. So it is still a trigger yeah. that you can utilize, which is cool. Yeah. So one weird thing that would happen is that even when they constructed these towers and the fenced in areas for the dogs, weird, almost like pranks would happen where hmm. they would, turn around for a minute and the fences would be open and the dogs would run off. So they'd install heavy duty locks, but then yeah. the locks would go missing oh, and things weird. like that. Yeah. Some of the researchers said that they felt like they were being watched and like toyed with. Like yeah. They, they were being like. Kind of. Yeah. Like the poltergeisty stuff that was happening. That, but it felt like intentional. Like you guys can do all this stuff all you want, but like we're really the ones in control of the situation here. Wow. Isn't that cute? You put a heavy duty deadbolt on there and there's really nothing that you can do to stop us from doing our stuff. Wow. Super weird. So other measures that they took to rule out naturally occurring explanations for the strangeness included searching for like hallucinogenic plants on the property. They searched for geological explanations and the Mm. list goes on. There's tons of things that they did to like eliminate, like they even like, they didn't drink the water Hmm. just in case there was potentially something that had been contaminating the water that was causing people to hallucinate. Yeah. Uh, So they always had bottled water. So I thought that was interesting, but they wanted to be as thorough as possible. They began conducting interviews with people in the area. Uh, Residents in the region were initially like a little standoffish about offering their stories because they didn't know or trust these scientists yet. Right. Also think about the way the Shermans were treated by the media. They were made to look crazy. So I'm sure that there was some degree of fear about being mocked by like out of towners, you know, these big city scientists, you know, right. Also, if their experiences were anything like what the Shermans experienced, any normal person would be nervous to share that story with anyone, like let alone a stranger. So luckily the NIDS team began to slowly gain the trust of the people in the area after some time. And then the stories came rolling in. Yeah. They were pretty surprised to find that many, many people had extremely detailed stories about their own experiences with the unexplained. Everyone from the little old lady down the street 
to the sheriff, to the Utes, and beyond had all seen and experienced high strangeness. Mm, So I'll talk about those kind of like intermittently. Okay. Uh, So the NIDS researchers would soon see for themselves just how everyday average it was to see nutso bizarre things on the ranch. Like I mentioned in the last episode, there are so many recorded sightings and the hunt for the skinwalker resources share so many that will blow your mind. So go read and watch. Yeah. But for the sake of time, I'm going to stick with just a couple. I'm going to do my best to be concise here. By September 1996, they had a pretty solid game plan in place and the investigation was officially underway. In the early days of the NIDS research, they had two like rotating teams in place who would take turns keeping track of the data being fed to them mm-hmm. by the different technology that they had. They wouldn't have to wait for long for their first odd sighting. On the 16th of September, 1996, around 1.30 a.m., the team saw a light. Hmm. It was hovering over the cottonwood trees, and it would do so for about 10 minutes before floating off into the night. The team was like ecstatic. We right. saw something, you know. Multiple objective parties witnessed something for themselves, and they sort of caught it with their gear. I say sort of because this is the mid-90s. Right. And it didn't capture the clearest images, you know. Of course. Right. So <laughs> between September and November of 96, the teams would routinely fly between Vegas and the ranch. It was during this time that they conducted many of their interviews that I mentioned. One of the first people that they connected with was a farmer on a neighboring ranch. Hmm. The book never said his actual name. They just called him Mr. Gonzalez. So he talked about his experience with the researchers. He said he'd experienced a lot of drama around his cows, just like the Shermans had. Hmm. One particular story that's upsetting for animal lovers. So skip ahead two minutes if you don't want to hear anything, you know, of harm happening to an animal. So here's your pause. So in 1995, Mr. Gonzalez recalled finding a cow in a field that she shouldn't have been in. One weird part of this story was that she was just like magically in this field by herself. All the fence lines were intact. Yeah. And there's no explanation for how she got there. Oh, weird. Yeah. Because she's not supposed to be in that field and there's no way she could have gotten in. So when he saw her, two of her legs were broken and she was like clearly in shock. When he saw her, he immediately knew this is pretty serious. Like I might need to put her down. So he, he ran to grab her a blanket just to like comfort her and assess the situation. And when he returned within only a few minutes, the cow was gone. Oh, wow. So she clearly couldn't have run away with two broken legs. Right. Even if she got into that field without broken legs, there's no way she would have gotten out. Wow. With two broken ones. So he scanned the pastures for her, but when he couldn't find her, he just kind of had to go home to kind of recalibrate. Right. So a few hours later, he was looking out of his window when he noticed that the cow was somehow back. So he ran out to her only to find her laying in the same field a few dozen yards away from her original position. But this time she had four broken legs. Oh, The only explanation that he could come up with was that something or someone had to have lifted her up twice and then dropped her twice into the same field. So he quickly put her out of her suffering. The Gonzalez family told tons of stories about their really weird experiences. And much like Terry, they were very believable and like very unassuming people. Mm -hmm. These don't seem like people that are looking for attention. They just seem to be 
you know, just like the Shermans, like we just want to live our lives. We love our, we just love our privacy. We want to do our job. That is our passion. We want to like build a life for our family, that sort of thing. So while activity wasn't super frequent on the ranch over the first few months, the team was quickly on their way out to the ranch after a very disturbed Terry reported another cattle mutilation. Mm. So the night before he'd been wrapping up work for the night when he noticed a few balls of light flying near to the ground, sort of in like a formation. Cattle weren't in that field, so it struck him as odd to see lights in that area, since there seemed to pretty regularly be that correlation between seeing the lights and then a cattle mutilation. Right. The team got there and spent hours searching for evidence of anything that the lights had maybe like left behind or something along those lines, but they didn't find anything. Yeah. So the team resumed business as usual. That was November 10th. Late at night on the 13th of November... Kelleher and the team were blown away when they saw a beam of light appear out of nowhere. Just like, boom, there it was. Hmm. It didn't make any noise. And it very quickly appeared near the ridge. They all watched it, very surprised at the speed and the silence when the thing did like a 360 degree turn and blasted over the ridge and out of sight. It apparently had happened so fast that they didn't have enough time to react to like try and capture it. So no photos. They like, they like had walkie talkies. So they alerted other people that were on the property. Like, Hey, this is happening at this location. Mm -hmm. So other people were able to see it, but they weren't able to document it as you know, any, in any measurable way. So the team did consider this just a step towards the goal of validating the claims. Yeah. Because they they now they're seeing things with their own eyes. Right. So it was important to the investigation that they began not just having eyewitness records, but they needed more hard data. Right. So once the winter was in full force on the ranch, NIDS actually decided to leave their post for a while. Terry promised to keep them in the loop and that they could obviously come out if anything happened that was needing to be documented. Yeah. But he said that the observation is pretty pointless mm. in the cold, really crazy winter conditions in the area. It would be very hard for people to just sit in a little trailer and, right. you know, below zero snowstorms. <laughs> so right. uh, they plan to come back in March of 1997 to resume their research. From December of 96 to March 97, the NIDS team only made their way out once to the ranch after a cattle mutilation. They, along with Terry and two veterinarians, one older and one younger, came to document the mutilation. I'm not going into detail on this particular one, by the way, but I will say that the injuries that were sustained by three calves Mm. were very bizarre and obviously not caused by anything natural. Yeah. There was like precision Mm. once again. The older vet tried to kind of explain it away with natural causes, but all of the natural causes were like, there's no way a predator learned how to use a scalpel. It's just not (laughs) possible. The younger vet was not convinced. But as these things go with many vets, as I learned, I I sort of alluded to this a little bit in the first episode that the veterinarian world is very divided on the subject of cattle mutilation. Right, right. It's almost taboo. Yeah. To say that something other than something natural could cause injury or death. Yeah. To a, a livestock, you know, so hmm. they did not. So they did not want to touch the concept of anomalous injuries because you don't want to be written off as a quack. So right. the older <laughs> vet basically just said, "Yep, a coyote or a big cat did this." The younger vet remained silent, and Terry, as was in fashion for him, mm-hmm. just chalked it up to another incident being written off. Yeah. So poor Terry, he 
you know, it's it's nice that the Nids team's there, mm-hmm. that they like they took him seriously, but he's trying to get to the bottom of it with people who have expertise and they just right. write it off as something impossible. Yeah. So the team was beginning to finish preparations to resume their study on the ranch when they got a call from Terry. All he said to them was, quote, they got a newborn calf. Mm. This will probably be one that you guys want to skip. We will timestamp it. His voice was trembling and hoarse. He was obviously upset by whatever he saw. So the team headed out as quickly as they could, and they were back at the ranch within five hours of Terry's call. Wow. So the team came prepared to document this cattle mutilation, and they had all of the necessary equipment and things that they would need to like perform a necropsy to like uh, attempt to dig a little bit deeper Mm -hmm. into this particular mutilation. They were not prepared for what they saw, though. So this is graphic. You've been warned. We've given you a chance, but we're going for it. Mm -hmm. This poor little baby calf had its legs ripped off and thrown 10 feet away from its body. Even with the cow being young, the sheer amount of force needed to rip bone from bone and tendon and joint is is high. Like, what could have possibly done that? So the weirdest elements of this particular event is that on one hand, there was like a ton of brutality with the legs being ripped off, contrasted with how the legs were positioned. They seem to have been strategically, almost like gently placed in formation, almost exactly 10 feet from the body, spread out as if the legs were just an extension of the body. So this is kind of Mm. hard to explain, but like- Trying to get a visual here, there's the body and then there's the legs jutting out. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. As if, yeah. The cow was laying with its legs spread out in each natural direction, but the legs were ripped off. Right. And placed 10 feet away. And they were like almost exactly 10 feet away for all four of them. Oh, weird. Yeah. Almost like, like, kind of like weird, like culty, gross. There's something specific about like an intentional about the positioning. It seemed like they all noted that the ear that Terry had put a tag on, on the calf after it had been born had also been removed once again, very cleanly, clearly with some sort of sharp instrument precision. Once again, the other strange element was that not only was there no smell at all, which is odd with a dead animal, but there was absolutely no blood at all near the body. This one's crazy. So the organs had been cleanly removed and it's like whatever did it literally made sure to like uh, clean up and avoid a mess. No blood. Oh. Yeah. Weird. Very strange. So Terry Uh. let the team take all the data that they needed with their various tools and then he gave them a play-by-play of what happened. He said there was no noise, but that there was a sudden reaction from one of his dogs right before he called the NIDS team. So the dog alerted Terry that something was up. He had Terry follow him to the spot where he had tagged the new calf only hours before. Then the dog sort of like growled and ran off and the dog didn't come back. Oh no. And that dog never came back actually. So anyways, then he saw the calf and called the team pretty much immediately. And that's full circle. So now what? So now they've got something concrete Mm -hmm. that multiple people were not only able to witness, but also sort of document in a way, which is progress. It's once again, tricky being that right. this per- particular sort of event isn't 
always taken seriously right. by the scientific community, but it is something. Yeah. <clears throat> the team had also contacted a professional tracker that would grace the ranch in a few days to see if they could help them get to the bottom of the incident. Yeah. So a few days later, the team and Terry were in the observation tower in the late evening discussing all of the potential explanations for the mutilation when suddenly the dogs started going nuts outside. Mm. So Kelleher, the physicist, and Terry jumped into Terry's truck to head off in the direction of whatever it was that was causing the dogs to freak out. Mm-hmm. So Terry had attached this like high power spotlight to the top of his truck that he could kind of like maneuver from the driver's side. Mm. And he would do that so he could like right. check on the animals at night. Yeah. So the trio are bouncing their way around the property in the truck, spotlight blaring. The light scanned across the pastures, lighting up the occasional grouping of cattle when they noticed what they thought was a cow that had made its way a little too far from the rest of the herd. Mm -hmm. They shone their light in the direction of the cow when they suddenly noticed a pair of yellow orbs up in or near a very tall tree. Weird, but this put Terry on high alert since the light sightings usually ended up with a dead or mutilated animal. Right. So when they got closer, <clears throat> the orbs didn't move. And that's when it hit them that the orbs in question were not orbs, but a pair of eyes oh. that were reflecting the light from Terry's big spotlight. Oh, goosebumpery. There, oh, just, here gosh. it is. <laughs> Here's the goosebumpery. So the, the eyes sat motionless in the tree watching them. They all noted this like eerie feeling because the thing didn't move at all. And nobody would have even seen it had its eyes not been visible in the light. Right. So Terry grabbed his gun that he had in the truck. Mm. And from about 50 yards away from the tree, he took a shot. Almost immediately, the light from the eyes disappeared. So the group thought that they had hit it. Yeah. Because Terry's a good shot. He's not going to miss, you know. Yeah. So the group went to go see what this creature was, but they couldn't find it. They split up and they began scanning the area when Terry yelled out that he saw it. He took two more shots and yelled again, I got it. I hit it. Point blank range. I was 30 feet away from it. I got it. Yeah. So they all quickly but carefully made their way towards the animal, heeding to the fact that a wounded animal can be extra dangerous. Right. But they were puzzled to find that it was nowhere in the area where it had been shot. So one of the guys had their video camera going for this portion, hoping to capture a glimpse of whatever this thing was. Yeah. They were getting frustrated and like a little bit worried about not being able to find it. Terry said that he saw its outline when he took the shot and he said that it was huge. Hmm. He estimated it had to be several hundred pounds. It was huge. So the last remaining snow from winter was still under their feet. They kept looking for any signs of the animal when suddenly they saw a footprint in the snow. It was about six inches in diameter with two large protruding, like backwards protruding claw prints, almost like a large bird. Oh, okay. A very large bird. Yeah. Whoa. Do, you, do you see what I'm saying? Like the yeah. like talony claw yeah. type things that protrude backwards. So they found another track just like it a ways away. But after searching for two hours, they just decided to turn in for the night because they couldn't find it. Right. So they debriefed back at the observation tower. Terry swears that when he took the shots at the thing, that he saw another pair of eyes glowing up in the tree, meaning that if what he saw was correct, there was not only one weird animal with scary dinosaur bird feet, but uh, maybe two, maybe more. (laughs) They also noted that like the wolf on 
day one in the first episode, there was mm-hmm. no blood. So file that one away as another weird sighting of who the heck knows what. Right. <laughs> Shot at with no reaction other than just going, just leaving. If I knew that I had shot at something and then I saw its footprint was a monster dinosaur <laughs> bird talon, I don't even know what I would do. I don't even know what I would do either. <laughs> it's, it's just like dark, 500 acres of darkness. Right. Oh, yeah, that and, stresses and, me out. And you have a little observation tower that you sit Got your in. Your little tower. <laughs> there's well, and and that like just takes me back to the story from the last episode too, where mm-hmm. um, uh, Terry's wife—I forget what her name is—Gwen. Gwen. Gwen was out on I think the ridge or yeah. somewhere, and mm-hmm. something felt, flew. Yes, yeah, something yeah. flew, and she felt this big rush of wind. And it's like, well, what if it was that thing? Mm-hmm. Oh. Could have been. I thought about that too. That's crazy. Okay, so one thing would eventually begin to become very frustrating for the NIDS team. Their first goal had still only halfway been met. They wanted to validate the existence of something paranormal. Each member of the team has handfuls of stories of the strange things that they've witnessed. They can recount these stories with intense attention to detail, and that is definitely a step in the right direction. Yeah. However... The team, though stacked with gear, still was having a hard time gathering any data. Right. They can't really validate the experience without the hard data. So they're seeing these crazy things alongside of multiple other credible Mm -hmm. witnesses, but seeing something is not the same thing as being able to measure it. Right. So I'm just going to breeze through some more things that they claim to have witnessed on the ranch because I really want everybody to go read the book. Yeah. And watch the updated documentary. Yeah. And like experience the terror for yourself. Yeah. Because <laughs> the the way that this book is written is so good. Oh. Do you remember me sitting on the couch being like, what? Yes. At like two in the morning, I'm sitting there with like my hands on my right. forehead and my eyes huge, like staring at my book. And you're like wanting to tell me a story, but then you're not telling me anything because we I have don't want to ruin this. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now I have to wait. Delayed gratification. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, that's not my strong suit oh. in life. I am not a delayed gratification gal. But okay. Whew. So there would be a recurring problem with animals either disappearing never to return or with animals disappearing and then reappearing with no explanation. Mm. So there's this story where several of these prized bulls like bull cows, they were like the black Angus bulls, Oh yeah, were in their enclosure. Terry and Gwen were both on the ranch on this particular day. So Gwen didn't go there very often, right. but she would go with him sometimes, go with Terry and just kind of check the state of certain animals that were there and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but she would never stay long. So they were together outside, just kind of admiring how strong and beautiful these animals were. Gwen even said... <laughs> In this like almost foreboding foreshadowing that's like super unfortunate. She said, quote, I would lose my mind if anything happened to these animals. They left the ranch for less than an hour. And when they came back, the bulls were gone, but their enclosure was secure and unopened. Oh, my gosh. Where did these 2,000 pound (laughs) animals go? So Terry went over to the enclosure to inspect it and make sure that it was in fact secure. And that's when he saw something very baffling. There was like a small trailer that he kept near the enclosure. Very small trailer. The only entrance, the only way that animals could be moved into the trailer is through this really small door Mm -hmm. of the corral. 
that had been tightly locked and unused for a long time. They were like covered in layers of cobwebs that were undisturbed. So the bowls. The four large bowls were somehow inexplicably in the trailer. They were all super calm, almost like in a daze, in like sitting quietly in the trailer. First of all, how did they fit in there? And they're all calm. So Terry kind of like pounded on the side of the trailer to see if it would get them to stir. And stir they did. They went absolutely nuts in the trailer. They were very panicked. So after a couple of minutes of them panicking, one of the bulls managed to kick the door to the trailer down Mm -hmm. and they all bolted. It took Gwen and Terry hours to get the bulls secured back in their corral. When Terry told this to the NIDS guys, a calculated sort of sweep of the property, complete once again with all the relevant equipment, took place. So one specific tool they used was meant to measure magnetic fields. When they swept over the inside or like the door of the trailer that the bulls had been in and along the bars of their enclosure, the magnetic levels spiked like Hmm. crazy spiked. Wow. So it took two days for the magnetic fields in those two spots to disappear. So something had made the trailer and corral highly magnetic. So that's fun. That's wow. What? (laughs) I know. I'm trying to understand like what? (laughs) That's a very okay. The animals would have more problems ranging anywhere from them appearing to like be seeing something that the humans couldn't see. Mm -hmm. Like they would be like doing their cow thing, eating some grass, licking some salt, you know, just living their best cow life on the ranch. And then they'd like freeze. And then they like, they'd all be like staring in the exact same direction. They'd all freeze and they'd like back away or like hold really still. And then suddenly at the same time, like the flip of a switch, they'd all like take off and spread around, running around like crazy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I feel like I... Biosensors. Yeah. We need to get a biosensor cow for our house. Yeah, that's what we need. That's how we'll know that we're safe. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Scary. Very scary. So these events would also be marked, all of them would be marked by high levels of magnetic energy. So once again, that's fun. Yeah. Other things would happen that would cause the super well-trained dogs to like cower in fear yeah. in their kennels. They would like refuse food and water for days and things like that. And like mm-hmm. wouldn't come out. And they were very obedient to like Terry and the the team. Like they knew that they had a job to do and yeah. they just refused. Weird. So oh. that is also strange. Very strange. One common occurrence that the NIDS researchers and Terry had was this like distinct feeling of fear along with feelings of being watched. It was like a, almost like a certainty and like an acceptance Mm. that they were being watched. It could be broad daylight when it would hit or the middle of the night. But many people who worked on the property described it in the exact same way. They'd also say that every single time they got that feeling, almost instantaneously after getting the feeling, they'd smell this strong like musk odor, Mm. like animal musk odor. Yeah. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but there's a really good bit of actually like compelling and interesting connections that they make to the book to alleged like Sasquatch or some other unidentified Mm. like large mammal sightings that they make many a connection. So I think that that is worth digging into. If you read the book, you will agree with me. So, okay. The scariest one, in my opinion, though, I'm just going to share one. It happened in June. I think this was in 96. It could have been 97. 
the team had just set up some night gear in the area that would allow them to observe a place where formations of lights were seen gathered. So wherever there were hot spots, Mm -hmm. they'd have like broken up teams in those areas with their stuff to try and catch something. So suddenly a bluish white ball of light appeared out of nowhere. It was low to the ground and it was like illuminating the grass beneath it and kind of like slowly bobbing up and down. Yeah. The team were able to assess that it was in the same pasture as they were in. So decently close. Yeah. And so they also noted that the normal sounds of wildlife, like farm animals, crickets, all that were non-existent. Everything was silent. Then it suddenly disappeared. So they busted out this like super high power military grade (laughs) beam light that can literally bleach your retinas if you get it shined in your eyes. Oh, wow. And they used it to scan the pasture that they were in and like the surrounding ones to see if they could figure out where it went or what it was up to. And they found nothing. So they took an array of equipment again on another sweep. One researcher was using his night vision binoculars when he suddenly screamed out in panic, swearing that something huge, so huge that he said it was blocking out the stars in the viewer of his binoculars was right in front of them all. The rest of the team frantically took photos, but none of them could see anything. The researcher claimed that it got smaller and smaller until it was out of sight. Afterwards, he said that whatever it was had told him in his mind, in his mind, a voice that was not his, that it was watching them. This would not be the only instance of people being frozen by fear by any array of phenomena on the ranch, followed by hearing a voice in their head that was not theirs. Yeah. I'm not going to tell this whole story because this is getting long, but one guy that the team had interviewed that had lived in the area swore up and down that he saw something in the sky from his window, like a craft of some sort. So he went out to see what it was. And when he did, he saw the craft. Mm -hmm. He said that suddenly a very strange voice said to him in his mind, quote, you shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be seeing this. Go back inside. You're going to miss your family. <sighs> yeah. So he yeah. he listened and he went back he went in. Back inside and he did not come out again. Apparently. Oh. <sighs> Let's assume that guy's telling the truth. Yeah. <sighs> what? That one really got me. Yeah, that one really bothered me. That's a very oh. Like gosh. anybody who's had even minor intrusive thoughts like gets how annoying and like upsetting those can be. Right. But to have your mind completely invaded. Right. By have, something or someone else. Yes. And it tell you the worst thing ever. Right. You shouldn't be seeing this. <sighs> that elevated the queez. Yes. I'm a few points. I've, I've the goose bumpery. Yes. In the basin. <clears throat> yes. Tis so here. the trend continued. <sighs> Many people would observe all kinds of bizarre things, but none of it was measurable still. Members of the team would say that whatever the phenomena was, was like almost intentionally choosing when and how to interact. It would swoop in silently and just do whatever it wanted to whoever it wanted or not. It would do nothing if it didn't want to. Hmm. By the end of August of 97, they still hadn't gained anything to help advance this particular wing of the scientific field. They really did want to broaden the scope of what things that science observes and takes seriously, namely the supernatural or paranormal accounts. Mm -hmm. 
In the summer months of 97, the researchers said that if the NIDS people were present, so was the activity. All right, so we are running out of time, so I'm not going to tell all of the amazing stories that there are, but I'll leave you with one or two more. So late one night in August of 97, the team was like strategically placed in different hotspots around the ranch. They had all their stuff ready to go. One of the researchers said that he would like meditate and it's that seemed to speed up the process. He said the nights, mm. that's not like verifiable, but he would practice some form of meditation yeah. and within a few minutes there would be some sort of activity, which is interesting. Kind of like that guy in the last episode that came and wanted to meditate on the land and, yeah. and the one creature I thought of that too, like instantly thought of that one. So this dude was like meditating, trying to like almost invite the phenomena, which feels like a bad idea to me. That seems, that seems like the premise for a horror movie. It does. (laughs) So he initially thought it wasn't working. So the team was planning on moving to a different hotspot when suddenly that researcher who they called Jim in the book said he saw a light on the track below. I think they were on the ridge Mm. or just like on an elevated part of the property, but he saw a small yellow glowing light. Mm -hmm. Everybody else saw it too, but like barely. So it started out small. So he observed through his night vision binoculars when suddenly he drew in like a sharp breath, like Mm. the light was growing larger, expanding and almost opening into the night. He started kind of like frantically announcing what he was seeing as he was seeing it. Mm -hmm. He said, it's getting bigger. He said, it's not just a light. It looks like a tunnel. Then he announced there's something in the tunnel. He was completely transfixed and absolutely would not look away from what he was seeing. He said, quote, oh my God, it has no face. It climbed out. Oh my. He said that he could see the creature's head. He said that it was black and that it was on the ground and that it had walked away. He was still in a panic when the light began to shrink before disappearing. What? (laughs) So they asked him for like a clearer explanation of what he saw because all that they had seen obscured almost was the light kind of almost looked like it got bigger, got Mm -hmm. bigger, and then shrink down a little bit because they didn't have gear, like the same gear. So he told them that there was a creature in the hole that it came out of the hole and started walking around and now it's lurking on the ranch somewhere. lurking around. So that's not great. The team spent hours like quartering the land in search of the thing or any evidence of it, but couldn't find it. Oh my gosh, this is literally Stranger Things, but 25 years (laughs) early. (laughs) It's literally Stranger Things. (sighs) Yeah, coming stuff coming out of the upside down. Oh my gosh, they're coming. Yeah. Oh, okay. I just like pause for a minute on that one. Oof. That was one, another one. Like if that's true, uh, what are we doing here? What? <laughs> maybe the billionaires go into space. Like maybe we should tag along. You know maybe we shouldn't actually oh, nowhere safe. <laughs> nowhere safe. There's other creatures doing the same thing there. Okay. So uh. this is going to seem abrupt, uh, but we are definitely out of time. So, These activities would continue for years. Uh, Kelleher actually left NIDS in 2004, but he said that it had been some time since anything super noteworthy had happened on the ranch Mm -hmm. at the time that he left. Really, the activity was almost always present in some way, but it was seeming more and more unlikely to be caught. Mm. Uh, The team did what they could do, but even when they set up like more advanced technology, better security, 
cameras, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, there were instances where like the really high quality gear would be toyed with. Hmm. Like there, nobody, they didn't catch anything. It was like, they would like timestamp it right. on the recording and it would go from being perfectly operational to suddenly not working. And then they'd go look at it and it would be destroyed with no explanation. And so, yeah. and they were in like very like unassuming spots too. Not yeah. like they weren't super obvious. So like a group of teenagers coming in, like sneaking right. in to try and like they mess with it. it and, they wouldn't yeah. know to look there. Yeah. Yeah. So that sort of stuff would happen. So the team did what they could do, like I said, but their goal really wasn't met. Right. Uh, they sort of beat themselves up over it a little bit uh, because they really wanted to map whatever this is that's responsible for all the weirdness. So yeah. the incident with the creature coming out of the tunnel was sort of one of the last big splashes of activity that the researchers saw. I'm pretty sure that once NIDS disbanded that the ranch just kind of sat somewhat dormant. Um, I, I didn't get a clear date, but I think that they disbanded in 2004. Mm. The excitement and the investment just kind of wore down until Bigelow sold the ranch to another paranormal UFO enthusiast billionaire named Brandon Fugel. I hope <laughs> I said that correctly. In 2020. So he is currently funding and overseeing a similar research project <laughs> at the ranch, which can be seen on The Secrets of Skimwalker Ranch, the show on the History Channel. I had initially planned on talking about like the full range of like hypotheses of explanations that the team came up with mm -hmm. um, and about like the ranch now. But yeah, given all of the information that I've shared, knowing that I only shared a small fraction of what's out there, I think that no matter what you believe is true or false or um, embellished or understated about the paranormal in the area, I think that this quote from Kelleher sums up my feelings on Skimwalker Ranch very well. Hmm. Quote, the world, it appears, is much bigger, much stranger, and far more complicated than most of us can imagine. That is an excellent summary of <laughs> everything you <laughs> it just is. said. It, it, it is. Wow. Well, yeah. and I would imagine, considering how recent this new purchase is, mm -hmm. uh, I'd be curious to know in a few years if we hear more about yeah. Skinwalker Ranch. Yeah, I've seen like, I haven't, just being honest, I haven't watched that show. Like I really wanted most of my information to come from the people who were there. Yeah. Um, I didn't include how George Knapp ended up getting involved, but he was actually on and off of the ranch. He was one of the only journalists that they allowed hmm. on the property um, yeah. because his interest was genuine also like he genuinely just wanted to figure out what was going on and like to be a helping hand. Yeah. Like in the documentary, he's got like boxes and boxes and boxes of recorded hmm. interviews and uh, just stuff that the NIDS guys had given him copies of or whatever. And like one of the interviews, this one was crazy. This woman is just like so sad re hmm. recalling a neighbor who was a dear friend who would always come over and visit. And one night uh, he came over to visit at the time he always did. And he looked almost sunburned hmm. and she had said to him, like, what did you spend too much time out in the sun today? Like what's going on? And he explained that he saw like a, like a, either an orb or a light activity of some mm -hmm. kind. And that, that guy ended up passing away from cancer not long after oh, wow. a couple years. Yeah. And that seems to also be a trend where 
there are kind of abnormally high levels of cancer. Mm. And a lot of people that are like sharing their eyewitness testimony or people that they're having conversations with in the area, like that is one of their big concerns. Like, is this causing this phenomena? Is it causing not just terror, but is it causing health problems? Wow. Yeah. So that one, that actually made me really sad. The, that made me think of the Shupas. Look up the Shupas guys. (laughs) I almost wrote about it, but I'm like, no, I will spend an hour on the Shupas. Yeah. Well, and that, that makes me think we will probably come back around to Skinwalker Ranch at some point down the road for more fine-tuned episodes on things like that. And I'm curious to know in in a year or two or five or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, what's new on Skinwalker Ranch from this most recent purchase. So Yeah. Yeah. And the, the critique that I see on the show is kind of split. Like some people love it. Some people say it's kind of like hyper sensationalized. Others say, you know, they're the, what if they're only allowed to share certain things? Like right. if they catch certain things, maybe they're not allowed to share it. Cause they've got like the people who are invested in this current project. There's like a lot of big names on hmm. there. You can go to the, like the official Skimwalker Ranch website and you'll see all the pictures of the people involved. Tom DeLong's there. Like he's oh, wow. either an investor or I don't know what he's doing, but he's <laughs> just part of it. <laughs> Post Malone visited, wow. which like, of course, Posty visited. Did. Of course. He was like so happy about it too. <laughs> <laughs> I love Post Malone. Oh my goodness. He rocks. Wow. But well, yeah. For now. Let's end on the note of Post Malone. Let's end the note. Yes. Post Post, if you want to come on the show as a guest and tell us about your time, <laughs> we'd love to have you. <laughs> Post, please. Post, please, please. Um, for now, let let us leave Skinwalker Ranch and maybe we'll return in the future. But this has been an incredible couple of episodes. Thanks for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. Mm-hmm. Um what, what would you rate this one? Would you call this one unusual, unsettling? Or I call unsavory? it unusual. 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 Because it's like, I feel like there's a really interesting contrast between the like fine-tuned uh, processes of scientific study mm-hmm. and then just the absolute mind-boggling chaos yeah. of the activity that they're reporting. And like how the juxtaposition between those two things is so stark. Yeah. It delights me in such a way that it's like, it's unusual. I don't want to go there. Right. Post can go for me if he wants to go back <laughs> in my place. But yeah, I, I would vote unusual. Yeah. I I would mostly vote unusual except for the one story of the creature in the coming out of the tunnel. That yeah. one's unsettling. I'm unsettled and I'm going to be unsettled all day now. Thanks a lot. Yeah. So there's <laughs> just portals opening up in Utah with... Yeah. With something monsters coming out of it, <laughs> come on, the squatch. <sighs> so if you are, if, if if you have a vote on what this is between unsettled, unusual, <laughs> unusual, unsettling, or unsavory, you can comment that on uh, any of our posts. What you think about this episode today? Also, if you haven't already, please subscribe and leave a five star review. It helps other people to find the podcast as well. And you can follow us on all of our social media platforms. This one is a doozy. Sorry. Yeah, this one is a doozy. And the Facebook, on Facebook is, yeah. this one's a doozy podcast. Mm-hmm. And you can also email us with your uh, personal stories or suggestions. This one is a doozy at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. 
please do. We would love, 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 love to tell your stories. So. Yes. All right. Well, with that, that was it. We'll see you next week for another doozy. Bye-bye.